This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. Hey everybody, this is Mark in San Francisco. Gordon is out for the next two weeks, so today we have a very special guest, one Mr. Keith Smiley, an iOS developer here in San Francisco. Hello. Hey, how's it going? All right, how's it going? <laughs> Fine. So Gordon is turning 30. He turned wow. 30 yesterday, the big three zero. So he's taking two weeks to go home to the motherland of Texas and... Uh, taking these headphones off i can hear myself and he's going to get presumably very very drunk on shiner and eat a whole mess of barbecue and if you're not from texas a whole mess of means a very large amount of i hear they have spicy stuff there Mm. i i I think so i don't know that's true i've never actually been i feel like gordon said something about a store where you bought sauces that were very hot at some point in his hometown right yes and if I recall correctly, there's a brewery where you can get beer, and you can take the beer to go. Ah, that's a good time. And, like, walk around downtown Fredericksburg, I want to say, and drink your beer. This is definitely something San Francisco needs. Walk around, drink beer, not get arrested. I'm surprised we don't have that. Because you can yeah. walk around and do just about anything else and <laughs> not get arrested. And actually, people do walk around and mm-hmm. drink whatever they want and not get arrested. So I guess that should be fine. Well, you can put anything in a brown bag, right? As long as it's, like, in a brown bag. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Well, like, when you buy, like, a 40 at the liquor store on your way home from work. It's just a common occurrence. If, if you do, it's the royal <laughs> you. They ask you if you want, like, a brown bag. Because it's, like, implied, like, you're going to open this thing and you're going to drink it and get bent <laughs> on your walk home. So I think that's, I think that's allowed. I, I don't think that's legal. I think that the people just pretend like you're not doing it. Oh. I'm sorry to so, ruin that for you. So it's effectively illegal. Yes. Okay. I can live with that. According to The Wire, that is how that happened. Oh, I need to watch this show. That's like actually a scene where they talk about that. And uh, the police chief is trying to justify legalizing drugs in a certain part of the city. And he's saying, well, this is what the cops did in the 40s. They just started not arresting people using brown bags. And so we're going to do that same thing now, except by letting people do heroin in this area. You should watch The Wire. It's good. I, I will watch The Wire. But I do want to say that alcohol and heroin are very, <laughs> very different. Yeah. I wasn't trying to, to say otherwise. Okay. <laughs> so we should probably not talk about baseball. <laughs> well, you are wearing a Giants shirt, so that's kind of difficult. I'm not. I am a Cubs fan, speaking of the last episode of the show. Oh. So do you have things to say about? No, I don't. Okay. Well, that's. <laughs> Not what we were hoping for. Yeah, we were sorry. hoping for someone that would have very strong opinions about the Cubs. Nope. I don't, I don't pay enough attention off-season to have a strong opinion. But if I did, I would share it with you. Good talk. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I got John Lester. Okay, no, we should not talk about this. <laughs> All right. So what have you been working on? Um, I have been working on a Mac app that uh, does some stuff, uses some reactive cocoa, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Are you ready to talk about what it does, or are we, are we waiting? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't really care if we do, so I guess so, yeah. <laughs> uh, so the Mac app pulls for pull requests on GitHub. That is a complicated sentence. And gives you 
notifications, like OS X notifications, when there is a new pull request to a repository that you're subscribed to in this application. I guess our initial thought with, uh, with it was we had a few of us working on, or like you and me, uh, working on a different application, and we were wondering, or not wondering, but, you know, we cared when the other person submitted a pull request, right? So, you know, you'd maybe get that email depending on how your email stuff is set up. I don't get emails from new pull requests, but maybe you'd get a GitHub notification, but a lot of people's GitHub notifications are, like, overwhelmed with tons of crap. So we were thinking that it might be useful to get a push notification for these pull requests, right? Right. So, yeah, I don't know. We built that. Uh, I don't know. It's It works at this point. We're kind of putting some final touches on it and stuff like that. I, I know for me that I check email exactly twice a day in Ooh. the morning when I get in. Yeah. You seem shocked wow. by that. Yeah. It's too distracting to have open during the day because it completely derails me. It's like, oh, this sales thing just happened or you know, something else is going on. And, and I'm a very highly distractible person. So I do just confine it to I come in in the morning, like the first 30 minutes, drinking coffee, like catching up on email, trying to get to inbox zero, quit mail for the rest of the day. And then the last hour or if i'm really in the zone i'll just leave and like finish doing email on the bus on the bus home um so i just don't have it open and if someone wants a pr review like they're gonna have to like dump it in a room in slack and ping me or god forbid use the at channel and ping everyone uh to like review this thing and like that's less than ideal because i can't really opt out of those but at least with with this app you can just select the repos that you want to watch and just start getting regular you know, notification center notifications for them. Click on it, open the diff in uh, Safari. Does it go straight to the diff? No, it doesn't. Uh, we could think about that. That would actually be interesting. I, I don't know. It depends on how people use the description, though, right? Because if you write a meaningful description in the pull request, which we sometimes do, depending on what we're doing, then I would probably want to read that first mm. before I read the diff. So I think it's just reasonable to go there. I think that's what I expect from that. I don't know. I mean, in theory, we could add like a button or something that sent you straight to the diff instead of where it went now. But can you add those multiple buttons to the notification thing, or is that a, a private API? Yeah, no, you can add at least like two buttons that do different things. I'm not sure if you can. You definitely can't do everything. We talked about before here how you can't hook into the same notification images that iTunes does, where it has the album art on the left, and then it has the iTunes icon like slightly smaller to the right of that. And we can't do that. So we're right now showing the user who submitted the pull request, we're showing their image on the right-hand side because we can put an image there. And then the left-hand side is forced to be the application icon. And iTunes kind of goes around that by using this like private property on NS user notification to set that image, which looks a lot nicer. But we can't do that. So it's, the, it's a very tiny app icon like just to the left of the title. Yes. Of, of the notification. Yep. And that, that makes a lot of sense for ours because the, the application icon is totally secondary to what you're trying to pay attention to. Like, we want to show the user image because that is the useful piece of information, especially for the stuff that we're working on where it's like, okay, you know, Mark submitted this pull request or whatever. But now we just have two giant images, which takes up a huge amount of space on the notification and, like, cuts off the title of the PR and the repo title and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of weird. But uh, I'm not sure if we can do what calendar does where we it has two buttons and one of them is a snooze and when you click on the snooze it shows in like an ns menu that has a few options i'm not sure if we can do that or not but 
we might be able to. I think there's just like a respond to button click delegate method or mm -hmm. something like that, like activated. Does having a right image on the notification preclude you uh, from having those options? I bet you lose even more space and it pushes the right image to the left, right? Yeah, it, it looks really bad. Ouch. Yeah. Kind of a, as a quick aside, there is still a bug in Notification Center where if you have Notification Center open and you get a notification and then you click that notification, Notification Center closes and it takes you to whatever action, but every notification after that comes onto the screen as if notification center is open. <laughs> so it like starts like, I don't know, like a sixth of the width of the screen in and like animates even further. It's like right in the center of like Xcode. Like while I'm trying to write code, just that's like terrible. sitting there staring at me and like vanishes out the same way. But that's neither here nor there. Just everything's terrible on the Mac. I have submitted a surprising number of radars while we've been working on this project, way more than I submitted on an iOS project. And Diana asked me about that the other day just because I like submitted like three radars before lunch one day. And I just feel like, it, well, a lot of the stuff on the Mac, it just annoys you more because you could get around it or you could fix it if it weren't for sandboxing where like you just wouldn't even have that option on iOS so you wouldn't even care, right? Like I could I can set value for key to fix that image problem to make it work with the iTunes one by like setting the value of the image for the key of like underscore content image or something like that, but obviously we couldn't do that and then put it in the Mac App Store. Mm. And that that annoys me way more than something we could just not do on iOS at all, right? Because you have the alternative method of like you know distributing outside of the Mac App Store. What's the biggest advantage to distributing in the Mac App Store then? Well, I feel like there are, are a lot of advantages. Um, you know, it's easier, or in theory, you know, users could find stuff by searching for stuff, right? Like, I, I don't know. I haven't searched in the Mac App Store for a while in for just like GitHub. But I imagine that it wouldn't be too difficult to be high up in the search results for just GitHub, which I feel like would be useful if people wanted to do that. Uh, we don't have to deal with like licensing or any of that kind of stuff if we wanted to sell it and stuff like that. And overall, I think sandboxing is nice because it doesn't really make any sense that an application that like you know uh, listens for pull requests and then shows notifications should have access to my file system, right? Like, why do you have access to my music folder? <laughs> I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's not really a big deal if the application isn't doing anything nefarious, but. I, I get why sandboxing is nice. It j can just be super limiting sometimes. Like the login item stuff we were talking about, where there are two different login item APIs, like to get the application to launch at login. And the one that's not sandboxed is super easy, and it makes the application show up in system preferences under users and groups under your login items. And the sandbox one doesn't show up there. And that's by design. There's some Apple documentation somewhere that says that that's intentional. But I think that's way worse because that means, like, if you want to remove a login item or even see the – there's no way to see the login items that you have from sandboxed applications. So if you want to remove them, you have to know that they're happening, which you may not depending on whether or not the, like, application that has a – menu bar icon or a dock icon and then to disable it you have to open the preferences of that application and find out you know find a checkbox or something and remove it whereas with the non-sandbox one, sandbox ones you just go into system preferences and like hit minus and it's gone uh, yeah is, is there works. some app store requirement that if you do have a login item using this sandbox api that you have to provide an option to remove it uh yes but well kind of you can't enable it by default or you'll get rejected so 
Which which makes sense. I'm okay with that. But I, I guess that in theory, if someone enabled it, and then like if if you allowed a user to enable it with a button, and then you just didn't show a way to disable it, that might actually work. I, I don't know how that would happen, but it's just kind of unfortunate. Are you doing that in this app? Yes. So this app has a checkbox in the like advanced preferences that lets you launch a login, which I think is ideal for this application. We really didn't want to have to deal with that because of the crappier API. And we ended up just using some third-party thing for it uh, that isn't really well-maintained. Oh, and I guess actually that API is deprecated in 10.10 and it doesn't have a replacement. So that's kind of frightening too. So we talked about not doing that, but it seems like kind of a core feature. And I talked about this with Gordon and he said, you know, why don't you just let me add it as a login item? Like, because you can do that in system preferences. But I feel like it's too important to expect users to do that because mm-hmm. that is kind of complicated. I mean, you have to go through a few steps or whatever. Yeah. It's not one of those apps that you really use. So when you restart your Mac, you're not going to think, oh, hey, I need to open up this app. Otherwise, I'm not going to get pull request notifications. It's, it's just something that sort of runs and you take for granted. So right. you, you really want it just automatically launching when the when or when Mac OS X. Launches. Yeah, totally. So that sucks. Yeah. Is this a common thing where they like deprecate APIs and then just don't provide replacements, or is this just like things are awful? <laughs> I think it's just the I think it's just the latter. <laughs> things are unfortunate. But I mean I, I think they do this occasionally. But especially around the login APIs, like a lot changed, and I don't know why. And then there's not clear documentation on, you know, how to get around it. And like I said, like this is deprecated in 1010 with no replacement and no comments about why it's deprecated. There's like some threads on the developer form- forums that don't explain, like the people are asking and have no responses and stuff like that. And when you check that box to add it to the login items, does it have to prompt? Like, does the system have to prompt the user to allow it or anything? And no, it doesn't. You don't get one of those dialogues that. No, I, th- I think that would make sense if it did that. Like, uh, you know, they changed the dialogue in 1010 for browser defaults, right? So if a different browser asks for to be the default, uh, there's now, even if there's still an in-browser dialogue, there is a system dialogue that says, do you want to switch your default browser? And it's like, use Google Chrome, or the cancel button is like, use Safari or whatever. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they added something like that for it. I'd be okay with that. I, you know, I'd much rather know that my that stuff on my system is launching at login, which is why I'm annoyed that that list doesn't include sandboxed things. And I was actually using the API to look at what other stuff was launching on my computer, and there was some stuff that like, I definitely didn't expect. Like, I think Slack had something that was logging. I don't know. So this app, you also have a helper app, right? Right, which is what you have to do to get the launch at login stuff to work. So okay. the helper app is actually what launches at login. And then all of that help, all that helper app does is launch your main application. And it's, it's really gnarly code. And the, even the example from Apple or the documentation from Apple says to do this. But the helper app just kind of, it has to live in your application's resources. And then it kind of has to traverse up the directory tree to get to your application's executable. And then it launches that. So in the code for our helper application, there's like string by deleting path component five times. So it gets it gets itself, it's like its own executable path and then does that to get all the way up to your main application's executable. And that's it. And, and even worse, all this is happening in main.m. Why? Like, I, I don't why, know. Why? I don't know. Why do you need the helper app 
Um, I, I don't know technically why. I mean, you're definitely required to do it. Like the thing that launches at login has to be in a specific directory inside of your applications bundle. Like the documentation has the place where it has to be. It has to be in like contents slash login items or something. And that's the only stuff that can register with that API, mm. I guess. Uh, unless you register with like launch D specifically, but at that point you have to have root privileges anyways. So I don't know. Does this mean that you can make me an app that will show me all the things that are launching at login that aren't in the login items? Because I, I, I would use that app. Yes, I did do this, and I put it on GitHub. Um, I don't think it's... So you can't remove this stuff, but you can at least see it. Yeah. Right now, I, in theory, I could make you be able to remove it, but yes. Well, how would I remove it manually? Um, you wouldn't. Uh, I guess you'd go to the preferences of the application, in theory, and then uncheck uh. whatever place they had for that. Okay. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Mac apps. I didn't know you actually did that. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Okay. We'll make that a thing. That, like everyone should have on their machine. Yeah. I thought about trying to make that a better manager for that so that it was kind of equivalent to the system preferences manager. Like you could show the app icon and it, it shows like the app name now or the uh, bundle identifier, which it might not have an app name if it's like something you added manually through LaunchD. If you add login items that are like bash scripts or something, um, which I have for like, I use Mutt, so offline IMAP like runs through a launch D thing, so it starts on login. And so that doesn't have an app name, obviously, because that's just like pointing to a bash script somewhere in my home directory or whatever. But yeah, and, and I'm pretty sure you could implement removing of those with the correct API, which would be, I think, nice. You've been developing Mac apps for a while, right? A few years. Did you do an iOS app first or a Mac app first? Mac apps first. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I did Mac apps before iOS was, or like iPhones were released at all. And then definitely before the SDK, obviously. But I was doing Mac apps when it was, because I grew up with Macs. So it was, was like kind of odd actually at the time though. But uh, I was doing Mac apps of just like, I want to make this little helper thing. Probably a lot of stuff that I could have done with like a bash script instead. But I didn't know anything about the shell at that point because I was like, you know, pretty young and didn't really know a lot about computers so i could like but i could drag stuff out in the interface builder and like make buttons work yeah. and so yeah i did mac apps for a while like that before ios that was my experience i think in 2007 i bought like the aaron hillgas like mac development book and also at this point i don't even think i was on leopard yet still on tiger <laughs> when operating systems were 130 dollars for the upgrades yes <laughs> and very very stable yeah, <laughs> and very pleasing to use. Oh, how things change. That's not. That's okay. That's a dig. That's, that's kind of a dig. I don't think it, it wasn't Project Builder yet. Then it was still Xcode. But this is back in the day when Interface Builder was still its own app. Yeah, and like I can say that like I used Interface Builder as its own app, and that's like a like a badge of pride. Yeah, I should get I, that on a shirt. That was that was <laughs> relatively <laughs> early for me. But I feel like now I still hear people say. Well, I still hear like Daniel Jowkett say that he has builds that he builds for like super old versions of Mars Edit that he needs to build in like Xcode 3 still. Whoa. Or that was Xcode 3, right? Yeah. And I definitely see how that was way more confusing. And now in retrospect, that was way more confusing than having an all in one application, right? Because like you double clicked on that file and like opened a separate app and you said like you had a, no idea what was going on. It's much better to be in one giant or, you know, I guess you can argue about whether or not Xcode is better, but. It's shocking how mind-blowing it was when they integrated the two. I think it was like <laughs> WWDC 2010, maybe 2009, when basically it was Xcode 4. Right. And they, they did the thing where, you know, it's like they have Interface Builder open in the left pane, 
and the code open in the right and they click drag from like a view object into the code and like create an outlet or like create an action it was like the most mind-blowing thing you've ever seen in your life yeah i feel like that would be really hard to explain to like some of our like designers who are interested in ios and we're kind of working with them occasionally and they've been going through some classes where they're like learning how to use interface builder to make animations and uh, prototypes and stuff like that and i think it'd be really weird to tell them like okay well now you open this other app to do the ui stuff but then you're like kind of integrating these two applications because the code's over here and you're attaching it to that i think that'd be a really weird thing to explain yeah you're drawing connections between things in interface builder and then like the menu that the tutorial is telling you should appear like appears but the thing you want in there is not in there because you didn't decorate that property or that that ivar that like raw ivar like in the in, in the interface block like with ib outlet so of course it doesn't show up right and then you have all this crap on iphone that like you really don't ever really care about like the placeholders for like first responder like cluttering things up files owner like do you even <laughs> like, do you even see anything anymore that even says files owner like i don't even think that's a thing yeah i feel like that's a different part on the mac because at least occasionally you have to deal with that stuff, like the NS application stuff, because you have to set menus and things like that. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's how you set the uh, the dock icon menu. So when you right-click on the dock icon, it has like the normal system items, like quit and keep and dock and stuff. But then you can add more items on that dock. And so you need to set that somewhere in there. So I think I like made an outlet between that and the NS menu. I always forget that, that that's um, there, that like apps yeah. can configure that dock menu thing. Um, I sort of stumbled upon that the other day when Messages was having one of those days where it had the badge, but there were, like, no actual unread messages as far as I could tell from, like, the main window or the main interface. And I just happened to right-click on it, and it it puts the unread conversations at the top of that menu. And mm-hmm. clicking them from there actually seems to make the badge decrement oh interesting. and that's like the first time i've ever been at, like able to fix that without like rebooting my computer <laughs> wow so that's fun pro yeah. tip that may work for you i'm not going to guarantee anything that's interesting that might work well in our application at least uh we had to add that menu because we have a menu bar icon or a dock icon or both or neither right so we needed you to be able to get to like the preferences from kind of anywhere Mm. i guess if you have a dock icon you'll have the main menu so at least you could get to it from there but it seemed nice to have that uh preferences window from there as well so if you were hiding the menu bar icon for some reason because you what was the reasoning for having like those four possible states was it just to please everyone well, so I think that the well, the default is that there's no dock icon and there's a menu bar icon, and I think that's kind of the ideal state. So it just kind of sits up there, and then you get notifications. But someone asked, someone who works at ThoughtBot asked for being able to hide that because they don't like having stuff in their menu bar, but they also didn't want it in their dock, which I totally understand. So we needed to allow like hiding it from both, and that's when we implemented that uh and now if you like open the application when it's already running it shows the preferences so that's the only way you can get to it which makes sense i think for people who want that and i think that we eventually decided if you're doing that kind of thing you're just saying i know what i'm doing i'm going to open this from here and Mm -hmm. if you can't figure that out i'm sorry that you chose to hide both those icons yeah and worst case scenario you can always command tab switch well only if it's showing the dock icon right and that's the weird part oh of that. right 
So if you hide the dock and menu bar icon, the only way that you can see the preferences is by reopening the application, even though it's already running. So you kind of need to know that. But we are assuming that people won't hide both of those things unless they understand that kind of action, which a lot of applications do. Like if you, uh, Alfred does that, if you hide both of those things, um, like, I don't know, other applications that hide all the icons like that do that too. So I don't think that's too crazy. I've never had a problem with that with Alfred because it's expected that there's some keyboard shortcut to focus the window. And then right. worst case scenario, there's always the gear in the bottom right corner and you can like get to any of that. Right. That's not too bad. So we started using reactive Cocoa at about the same time. And like, this has been like a huge thing for me. Yeah. I'm, I'm so happy that Diana and I can claim that we did this first because right, fair. we introduced it into that Mac app when we, we had a weird case, I guess it was, um, we have a ton of repos that you're subscribed to, right? And we wanted to get the most recent pull request from all of them. And then we cared when all of those were done. And it, and we were like, you know, this is, seems like a good time for us to try out Reactive Cocoa and see how it goes. And we wrote it in like, you know, 10 lines of Reactive Cocoa. And we were like, this is fantastic. And we were using, oh, we were doing some KVO stuff at the same time. So we were like, hey, let's, you know, throw their API on KVO and see how that works. And that was great. And then later we decided we wanted the user images too, which made a really complicated chain of things because you needed the most recent pull request from every single repository. And then if you were going to show that re that pull request based on how old it was and uh, you know whether or not it was you who submitted it, we needed to download the user image. And all we cared about was when all of that was done. But as each network request is done, we needed to do some stuff. And Rat of Coco is perfect for that. And even th trying to think that through with NS operations and like throwing that all in a queue and dependent operations would be really complicated. You had a bunch of operations to do. At the end of each one of those, you had to do some side effect. And then at the, when they all completed, you had to do some other thing. Yes. And then, and actually, and then it even got more complicated with the user images, right? Because then after each one of the initial ones was done, we had to take the output from that, get the user image from it, and then go download that user image. And then we, after we added those, we don't care about until all of those network requests and all the user image downloads are done, right? So we needed to like aggregate all of that into one thing that you cared about. And the, the that's, I think, the craziest part for NS operations because you can make operations that, you know, had a completion block where you saved it or whatever. And then, you know, uh, you can make one operation that was dependent on all your initial ones. But then we would have to add more dependent operations as the original ones completed, which I think would have been pretty mm -hmm. complicated to do. Right, because it, we, yeah. if we had an original operation that had dependencies on 10 operations, and then as each one of those finished, we had to add another dependency to that original one so that it still wouldn't complete, like who knew about what would get really complicated there? Yep. Yep. But in, we could do that in Reactive Cocoa like, really easily. So we get the repositories you're subscribed to. We map over those and create a sequence of signals, right? And each of those signals is like get the most recent pull request. And then we kind of merge all those together and we subscribe Nixt on that in Reactive Cocoa. So we get the JSON from each one of those in a block, right? And so on that JSON, we kind of like put it in core data and we kind of mess around with it a little bit. And then kind of towards the end of that, we integrate a new signal that from that JSON takes the avatar URL from the user. 
So we like flat map that into that array of signals or into those merge signals. So now you've added even more signals to that. And then we have just a single completed block that grabs all of the newest ones based on some predicates from core data and then shows them. What's your experience been like working with core data and reactive Coco? <laughs> um, I'm pushing a button. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely not as great as using reactive Coco by itself, right? Like we have, so we have two projects going on right now. The one you're working on most of the time, the one that I'm working on most of the time and we're using reactive Coco in both. And I think that the reactive cocoa in yours, where which isn't using core data, is is a lot cleaner. And I mean, obviously, the people at GitHub have some like thoughts on core data, right? So it makes sense that reactive cocoa doesn't work as well with it, because I mean, I think that their big use case too is GitHub for Mac, right? So, and I don't know how much they're persisting in there or how they're persisting it, but I'm pretty sure they're not using core data to do that because they're using Mantle, which also doesn't really work that well with core data because you have to make objects that are subclasses of MTL model mm-hmm. and not NS managed object, right? So you'd have to have two model objects for each one of your model objects to make that work, which is why I've used, normally used the easy mapping library for that right. too. But yeah, I mean, it, it's gotten a little bit weird because of blocks, right? So in, inside of one of your subscribe Nixed blocks from Reactive Coco, you have to do some stuff from core data and then return some stuff too. So if we want to do that on a background queue, we kind of have to like make a block variable and then do a perform block on whatever context you're using and do the stuff and then return that so that it keeps going through the reactive cocoa chain, mm-hmm. which is kind of strange. Yeah. The, like one benefit to reactive cocoa is that you can like parallelize stuff and put stuff in the background. You never really have to worry too much about where things are happening or threading issues until really the end of your chain until it you know until it's sending next or it's sending error or it's sending completed and at that point you'll just say okay deliver on main thread like you know i i'm wrapping a network request in reactive coco and i'm creating a signal and i'm doing this thing and i'm sending completed and at the very end deliver on main thread done like it happens on wherever reactive coco wants it to happen but finally it gets funneled back into the main thread but because of core data's questionable concurrency apis where you have to dispatch things on this private queue that you don't have access to. And because Reactive Cocoa is so easy to use with threads, like you don't really know or have to care too much about what's going on over there either. Like it's hard to reconcile the two. Like at the very least, like if a context could vend its queue, like this is my private queue, I, I think you could at least make some rack scheduler that just happens to also run on that queue and then you'd be fine. But that is not... That is not possible because it does not publicize its queue, so it's kind of a mess. I, I think that I think the solution there would be like you'd have to do the thing you were just talking about and end up with like intermediate data objects that then later completely separate get like put into core data, which I don't think is super crazy. There is like sort of precedent for that, and it and the advantage is that it keeps your persistence completely separated from well everything else, just plain old objects. But um, yeah, like I I saw some of the pull requests coming through and i'm like this sucks but there's nothing we can do about it so perform blocks everywhere i think that the most annoying part about that was that it wasn't obvious that it was an issue until you turned on the concurrency debugging flag that was introduced in the last year or two and then it was like hey everything you're doing is wrong (laughs) right but everything works fine it just happens to be totally wrong and so that kind of like got it, it took us from having code that looked pretty nice 
but, and and worked, but wasn't obeying the Cordata laws to looking really terrible and doing the exact same thing, but making Cordata happy. Mm-hmm. That was the part that was the worst there. And I know we looked at the, uh, there's some reactive Cordata uh, library out there on GitHub that we kind of looked at, and but it didn't seem like it would help that a lot. And it was relying on using the uh, confinement model of contexts to function at all yeah which is what i was just going to recommend right. even though apple recommends not using them anymore right and and the documentation is really down on that it's like you know this is the default for uh you know backwards compatibility but you really shouldn't use it anymore which is fine and it makes a lot of sense within the scope of those apis but uh, you know i ended up making a signal that just performed a, uh whatever a block you gave it and then saved so it kind of wrapped that up in a nice way by you just uh, return something from inside that signal. It would like give you the context inside of that, and you could kind of do whatever you want mm-hmm. with it. And then that created signal would save and either like you know send an error or send completed or send a nixed of whatever was happening. Right. And that still looked okay, but it wasn't. I mean, it's definitely not great. The, re- the reactive coordinator thing looked good. I just kind of have misgivings about its stability that's nothing to say about its author or anything it's just that like it's a third-party dependency that's built on another third-party dependency and that always just like gives me pause like yeah i mean that's always been the thing that's kind of been questioned about about using reactive cocoa in the first place right it was like why should we introduce this big dependency that entirely changes our architecture when especially as consultants like we're going to hand this off to somebody and they're not going to understand how this library works because you know a lot i'm sure there are plenty of ios developers including myself until like a week ago who never used reactive cocoa right so that's a kind of a big deal for us yeah that does kind of box us in like i still probably wouldn't pull in reactive cocoa into a client project and at this point i'm like so in love with it that i it's going to be bad like i'm going to be angry for a little bit like that i can't use it Luckily, I have some tricks up my sleeve as, like, a fallback to, like, kind of get close to keeping an app sane. But that's a huge bummer. Like, I've almost become too dependent on it. Like, I'm just way too too in love with Reactive Cocoa. Like, right now, I'm just on this, this bender of, like, wrapping Apple's frameworks in Reactive Variants. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the location manager you've been working on? Um, well, we've been recording for 36 minutes. And, like, I think I want to save that because I don't know what we're going to talk about next week. Okay. So I think I might have you back next week. Okay. And we'll continue talking about maybe I'll actually open source it by then. Yeah, that would be that'd be good. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think there's a lot of room still for good reactive cocoa examples because there that's been a big part of our learning, right? Is there are a ton of ways to do things and you're trying to figure out kind of the best way to do things. And especially when, like you said, you're interacting with Apple APIs, like how do you reconcile that into the rack world where the stuff doesn't happen the same way? Mm-hmm. Um, I think you and Gordon had a really good point last week about like there are, you know, these different patterns in Apple's frameworks and how does that translate to rack, right? It's, and that's what you've been dealing with. Yeah, I have lots of pointers there that have, it's knowledge that has been hard won, but um, we'll share that next week, especially trying to wrap up imperative delegation is quite difficult with Reactive Cocoa, but uh, let's, yep. uh, let's wrap this up. So the show notes for this episode will be available at buildphase.fm slash 71. 
As always, we'd like to hear from you, so email us at buildphase at thoughtbot.com or reach out on Twitter at buildphase. And as always, we appreciate ratings and reviews on iTunes. All right. Thanks, Keith. Cool. Yeah, thanks. Later.